podcast, The Deep Sea Podcast, a pump take on a science podcast about everything deep sea. I'm Dr. Thomas Lindley. With me is the professor, Alan Jameson. You doing all right? I'm doing fine, Tom, as always. Good. Hanging in there. You've been bug hunting. I have. You were sending me some pictures of lovely beasties. Spiders. And a massive, <laughs> massive, massive stick insect. Love it. <laughs> Sitting on my garden furniture outside. Amazing. But it was so good at being a stick that a spider had incorporated it into its web without realizing that it was potentially food. Yeah, that's the audacity of these spiders that use the stick and six head as a vantage point for a web. <laughs> the method actors, so how long is that stick and stick got to sort of maintain that? <laughs> I don't know, I'm hoping it's still there when I go back, because it's really, really cool. I've since learned you can pick them up and play with them and stuff like that, so I might do that to freak folk out tonight. They're on the weird but safe list. Yeah, just sneak it into the house, have some fun with it. It's like Santa's list of Australia. It's like... <laughs> safe and dangerous not so sure about the spiders though i found quite a few weird ones of those recently yeah the one you sent me with the uh, the red stripe was well, like an amber stripe down its back yeah yeah i haven't seen that one before yeah there's all sorts of stuff going on in the back garden it's time to get the boba fett style flamethrowers out though i reckon just have a good purge yeah just wipe the slate clean start again hopefully next <laughs> time it's just possums ah humans in the environment ah yes good stuff so i have a song for the month this month and it was a very, very weird one because it was a very weird moment. So to set the scene, I've been working with the fish collection a lot recently and moving things through gnarly chemicals. So I was using formaldehyde, so good old cancer-causing juice, not nice stuff. So I'm there, full lab coat, full safety specs. As opposed to, can I just see you had a full lab coat yeah. as opposed to your normal half lab coat? Well, the, yeah, the, the, the crotchless lab coat. <laughs> yes, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> the peekaboo lab coat for the parties. The one that's carved just above the belly button. Yeah. That one. Yeah, 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 yeah my crop top lab coat. <laughs> <laughs> so instead of that, respirator, those gloves that go up well past your elbows, which we just used to call cow bum gloves, but I'm sure they've got a proper name. So doing that, I've got my, my Spotify recommended playlist playing, but I can't touch the controls because I'm all covered in horrible chemicals and I'm slinging about pretty gnarly looking fish that have been preserved for a very long time. And then this comes on, and my life immediately becomes entirely comedic. Um, and I quite like it, I got quite into it. So this is Parade of the Wooden Soldiers, played by the New York Percussion Trio. And uh, yeah, everything just became a little bit ridiculous. Uh, it was quite refreshing, actually. So I might, I might actually save that one, I might actually keep that in my, uh, in my playlist. Why do you have that on there? Because I liked Christmas so much that I've broken Spotify. Oh, okay. I even looked into ways of solving it. So I'm not the only one with this problem. I'm not the only one who's punk except when it's Christmas and then I go sort of really cheesy. So yeah, a few people complaining about this and the, there's no way around it. The only advice is play lots of the stuff you like until you sort of correct the algorithm. But I don't know. I feel like you should be able to click. You know, you go through your YouTube history. You should be able to say, just ignore December. We're almost at February. It'll be February by the time this comes out. And it's all Christmas. Didn't have that problem in 45-minute cassettes. No, they didn't sneak Christmas into those. No, they certainly did not. Was it a Korn album or a Slipknot album that had 13 minutes of silence and then a hidden track at the end? Oh, there's a few like that. I'm pretty sure there's a Primus album that's got that on it. And there's a Nine Inch Nails one as well somewhere, I think. Maybe that's the one I'm thinking of. I think it was a done thing. It was very specifically 13 minutes, but it's like when you've got it playing on like a CD changer in the car or something, it was a bit of a pain. Yeah. <laughs> 13 minutes of silence. Right, some deep-sea news. Rare deep-sea fish turns out to be not that rare at all. This is the barbled dragonfishes. They've been called rare, you know, solitary deep-sea fish, widely spread out. You know, the individuals are probably kilometers apart. However, a recent article describes a huge population of larval viper fish, 
in the Kuros Hole, a submarine caldera within Japanese waters. So interesting, maybe life history stuff. So the caldera, which is a cauldron-shaped crater left behind after a volcanic eruption, has been surveyed three times in total, once in 2000 and then twice in 2020. And over that 20-year time period, the temperature of the water rose by almost 7 degrees to 17.8 degrees centigrade, which is fairly warm for deep sea ness. Uh, no dragonfishes were seen during the 2000 expedition, but over 1,500 viperfishes were seen during the five and a half hour period on the 2020 expedition. So they've never been seen in such high densities, and it accounted for about well, over 60% of all the fish observations, so like dominated this area. And all the ones captured were juveniles, so suggesting that this was a juvenile population. They're even talking about them maybe becoming trapped in the caldera. I'm, I'm not so sure about that. But we had this with the long brooding deep sea octopuses as well, that you can target warmer areas to try and accelerate your growth because you're quite vulnerable during the early stages. So these larvae maybe want to accelerate their growth. Maybe there's enough food to allow it. So they want to pack on their size as quickly as possible because then you get safer in the deep sea. Same with the octopus. The longer the uh, gestation period that they have to tend for the young, the sort of more in danger they are. And even we saw it a little bit with the ice fishes sort of following temperature as well. So there's this is going to have like ramifications as the as the oceans warm. It's going to affect where these fishes are found. So this is probably a little glimpse of something that's always been going on, but we just happen to be in the right place at the right time to actually see it. I think they're going to regret that. Saying there's a load of fish in this spot and then publishing it. No, I think there's 1,500 baby viper fishes sitting in a caldera. And what happens when that volcano goes off? <laughs> they go that split second to look at each other and go, oh, I see. Uh <laughs> And then just loads of meat appears at the top. Yeah. Oh, it's a volcano. Right. Uh, That'll be why there wasn't any there in the 2000s, because the last lot just got wiped out in one big bang. <laughs> just got cooked. Yeah. I'm going to incorporate that into the, the wee fellas' bedtime routine tonight. Yeah. 1,500 viper fish sitting in a caldera, one rolled over. Yeah, I'll do that. I'll do that. I'll make it into a nursery rhyme. And then bang, they're all dead. <laughs> yeah, it's, a sh it's shorter than the three little monkeys jumping on the bed. Yeah. Glass sponges could provide a treatment against COVID-19. So researchers at the University of British Columbia says that a compound derived from deep sea sponges found off British Columbian coast at approximately 200 meters deep can block coronavirus infection in human cells. The analysis of more than 350 compounds derived from natural sources, including plants, fungi, and marine sponges, in an effort to find new antiviral drugs to treat coronavirus variants. Researchers bathed human lung cells in a solution made of the compounds and then infected the cells with SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19. And one of the most effective compounds was from deep sea sponges collected in Howell Sound in Canada. And they stopped the viral infection of the cells after a few days. So the next step is to see how these compounds respond in animal models. Of course, that it could be effective, but who knows what else in the body it affects. Can I interject to you again, Tom? Can I interject? Sure. I've got something else to add to this next story. As uh, when you're developing drugs and pharmaceuticals and all the rest of it, there's a massive delay in this very long-winded legal system to try and get compounds tested within animal models. So I was thinking what you could do is go and visit this lot, walk into the lab and just pick up a piece of that sponge and just start eating it in front of them and just, just, just yeah. wipe out all that paperwork and all those procedures and tests and, and ethics and all the rest of it. Just, just chow down on one of those sponges and see what happens. <laughs> Don't worry, hero's here. Yeah, COVID-19 hero right there. <laughs> Essentially, that's what we did with the with the absinthe deep sea water. Yeah, we've got a history of that. I don't. I think we're we're probably not a good model organism because we've probably been exposed to all sorts of stuff. <laughs> just do the usual Marcel Jasper's rule. So just go down, chow down on some of that sponge, see what happens. Make sure you wash it down with seventy five percent absinthe. <laughs>
and just peace out. Yeah. Anyway, speaking of absolute total nonsense, I came across something today, which nicely links to that. Remember we were talking before about deep sea water. People were selling deep sea water that was no longer deep or sea, therefore it was is water. Is there anything it can't do? Well, it was brought to my attention today. There's a company who you should perhaps not mention, but if they want to sponsor the podcast, then go for it. I'll... <laughs> we'll change our minds very rapidly if you want to sponsor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they are selling they're selling minerals from the deep ocean, right? Good. And you're supposed to take them, and there's a big long list of everything, all the health benefits from from drinking or or taking these minerals from deep sea water. But when you read the website, it's bizarre. It says the untouched clean area, which is the deep sea, Mm. keeps the original nutrition that humans need. Now now I'm slightly confused because I'm not sure humans evolved to have their optimum nutritional requirements (laughs) embedded underwater. Anyway, the composition of deep ocean water is similar to that of human blood. So, okay... Yeah, and it's uh, I mean all ocean water is because we came from there. Yeah, <laughs> surface sea water is easily influenced by anthropogenic activities, which significantly expose high risk of pollution. And by contrast, deep ocean water is very clean. <clears throat> it's not, uh, and where bacteria and organisms are hard to be alive. I don't even know what that means. Oh, I'm going to put that in our next paper. Yeah, hard to be alive. Anyway, so if you, if you take this stuff, it's it's from 662 meters off Taiwan. This is where they get it from. So they're obviously pumping it up from somewhere. But it provides essential energy to awaken the body protection system, bring a whole new feeling of rebirth to you. Right? Oh. <laughs> the, bit I, the bit I really liked was it, it says we employ low energy consumption technique to access the water at 662 meters to protect the environment. It's just like that's like saying I use a battery powered chainsaw to cut this tree down because i'm protecting the environment right <laughs> it's just so stupid it's amazing absolute garbage it does say on there somewhere to lower cholesterol drink deep sea water okay maybe we should phone some sort of doctor and say are there any times or any instances ever in the history of the human race drinking seawater a good idea <laughs> yeah there's whole poems been written water water everywhere and it's really good for my cholesterol <laughs> yeah oh, i feel so much better i've certainly not gone crazy and eaten my mates <laughs> but yeah it's like the, the entire ship's crew and company are dead but my god they had low cholesterol <laughs> you know what I mean? it's just like it's just so stupid maybe starving at sea does lower cholesterol <laughs> yeah but yeah anyway good, good luck to them but uh, I'm, I'm sure if we queried the drinking deep sea water thing they'd say well we've uh, we've brought it up to the shallows and we've taken the salt out so technically it's just water uh, well, they seem to focus more on the minerals because I think they were doing some like evaporated versions. Well, we should just buy some actually. Do you want to just do it as a test? We'll just do that. Just do it every day for a month and see if you if your body has awakened and, and you've got a whole <laughs> new feeling of rebirth to you. That'll be the measure. We'll try it. To be honest, it's a better idea than just chowing down on a glass sponge to see if you get COVID or not. I mean, it's better than your last offer, yeah. I think I might take that. I still think you should do it, though, for, for science. Okay. Well, it's got to be double blind, though. One yeah. of us has got to just be having tap water. As you're biting into this glass sponge like an apple, you've just got to whisper the words for science just before you do it. And the looks of horror <laughs> of everyone else in the lab just go, what is he doing? For science. The looks crunch. of horror immediately turn to relief. They're just like, oh, it's for science. Oh, good. Yeah. No, carry on. As long as we can measure the parts when you're finished. Imagine having to pick all those sponge spicules out of your gums, your tongue. Oh, oh. Do it, Tom. Anyone who hasn't had the wonderful opportunity to hold a glass sponge, it is just filaments of glass. It's silicate filaments. So it does get all in your fingers. You've got to wear special gloves to hold them. It's like fiberglass. And it's, yeah, they're not nice. Yeah, you might, you might need a shot of absinthe before and after that one. If in doubt, just incorporate absinthe into your procedure. Yeah, makes all your problems go away, right? It does. It does. It really takes the edge off. Yeah. A little bit of a tangent, but there is a new Deep Sea video game in early access called Surviving the Abyss, and a bit of a base management, base builder one. I'm seeing a few more games, especially a lot of indie games, sort of coming out with a bit of a Deep Sea theme. 
I'm toying with the idea of us doing something with that. So if you'd be interested in watching a live stream or watching like us messing around with some of these, give us a shout. It's something I've been sort of bearing in mind for a while. Are you including me in that? I've not played a computer game since 1987. <laughs> I know you, you, you love Turok too. It was fundamental. So I'm going to address the listeners here. So listeners, uh, I've not heard about this before. <laughs> I have no idea what he's talking about. So you, you want me and you to play a computer game where other people watch. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, it's a thing. It's a thing the kids are doing. Why? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. Isn't that like watching someone else use Excel? <laughs> I'm going to quote the 10-year-old lad who lives next door to me who gave a brilliant retort to his dad. His dad was making fun of him. It's like, you're not even playing computer games. You're watching someone else play a computer game. And he immediately came back with, you watch football. Nice. Spot on. Yeah, it's got a point. <laughs> While we're on little tangenty news, a one-off segment, unless they keep doing it, I just want to keep an eye on the fish community. So new segment, fish crimes. Not strictly deep sea, but fish adjacent. Uh, Goldfish has committed identity theft and has made a purchase on the Nintendo eStore. <laughs> How? So to follow on from streaming, this was a stream where somebody set up some basically computer vision to allow their goldfish to play Pokemon on the Switch. And they were streaming that as an online stream. So it'd be going for like hundreds of hours because it turns out goldfish aren't great at Pokemon. Right. Um, so based on where the, the fish was in the tank, corresponded to different button commands. And they just left the stream running. They sort of, you know, it'd been going for days and days. And the game crashed, unfortunately, and dropped them back into the sort of main menu. So everyone watching online is watching this goldfish like stumble around the the main menu and eventually it got itself into the store and it made a purchase <laughs> so the goldfish bought a game it would rather play right so i thought that was quite funny is that more or less interesting than watching us play a computer game i think that's more but that it does go for hundreds of hours what computer game are we playing by the way uh, well there's a few different deep sea ones i, I like the idea of subnautica i know who did something like this oh my um, kids have got that it's insanely dull just like swimming around <laughs> in circles for hours on end not knowing what to do it's soothing though is it we need something a bit more high energy yeah, right. Yeah, I'm up for that. We'll have a think about it. This could be one of those potentials for something which is so bad it's actually entertaining. But yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll whip you at a computer game. No problem at all. <laughs> you just name the game. Name the game, pal. Oh, he's confident now. Not yeah. played since Turok 2. Yeah. On the N64. I don't think it was 2. I think it was just Turok 1. Oh, it is. Tekken 2. You're thinking of Tekken 2. That was the one. Yoshimitsu. Oh, right. Oh, I thought it was the Dinosaur Hunter one. No, I think it was. But it was. I think you're getting Turok and Tekken 2 combined. Uh, sorry, I don't remember your life so well. <laughs> 1996 that was. It's when the tall ships were in Aberdeen. I remember it was a good summer. Right? <laughs> so, let's get back to our moon analogy stuff. We put a little piece out in the conversation about the moon analogy. Just trying to get it out there as much as possible. How it doesn't really work as an analogy. I think that we've got a, a moon paradox happening just now. Right. So remember I said I was going to keep a tab on how many times I've heard that used legitimately this year. I'm up to four already and it's only still January. But wow. the whole thing about the moon analogy being bad, I think it's now gone the other way that I'm seeing that more than the actual analogy and that's starting to do my head in. You're never happy. <laughs> just, I don't know. It, it, could everyone just stop talking about the moon? Just <laughs> don't care. I just don't care. Actually, talking about changes in perception of the deep sea, Deep Rising, a film featuring and produced by Aquaman himself, Jason Momoa, has had its premiere at the Sundance Film Festival. Uh, we haven't gotten to see it yet, but the doc covers the sort of extremely complex topic of deep sea mining, both politically and environmentally. The early reviews I saw are actually loving the visuals, but said that the wider topic and the narrative jumps around a little bit. It's a lot to follow. It's a lot to get into one. But it does seem that the tone of the film is going to push against sort of the unknown alien monsters trope and encourage a wonder of the deep sea. And I just really like to see film buffs and people who review these things 
really enjoying footage of the deep sea and talking about it using new language, talking about it using sort of the words beautiful and amazing. And so I liked that. I liked to, I liked to see that shift in how it's being presented. Curious to see the film, but I just, I'm almost more interested by how regular folk who aren't super involved in the deep sea responded to it. I thought that was really interesting, seeing how they were enjoying the visuals. Like no, it was none of the language I usually see. It was wonder and beauty. So I'm going to keep an eye on that. Does this, did the Jason guy only get that gig because he was Aquaman and somebody went, we need a, we need a guy who knows water. <laughs> I'm sure it doesn't hurt, but I think he's quite, he's quite involved. Is he? Yeah, yeah, he's quite an ocean advocate. Oh, Aquaman could sponsor the podcast. Well, that'd be fantastic, or at least a little shout out. Aquaman's what, DC Universe, isn't it, right? I mean, it's no Marvel, but they must still make a lot of money. <laughs> yeah, is that your opening pitch? That's how you're going to go in? Yeah, yeah. You know Marvel, but we'll, we'll slum it with you lot. Yeah, well, maybe try and up the reviewership by getting us getting on the podcast then they might be able to get up to the dizzy heights of marvel yeah. you know we're supporting them well they support us that's how it works tom we hold each other's hand here <laughs> yeah fair enough I'd, I'd love to have a chat with him he's uh he's in an ilk of like giant lovely men which seems to be it seems to be a trope i like this in this sort of new positive masculinity so there's him the rock and terry cruz just seem like lovely giant men so um yeah <laughs> he's a good ambassador in that as well He's still breaking in half, though, if you wanted to. Well, that's just it, because he could, but he's lovely. So he doesn't have to be lovely, he chooses to be lovely. Also, oh, he gets an extra point because he could kill you, but isn't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. Thanks for not killing me, you giant, handsome man. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, there you go. It's funny how you win points in this life, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, in my, my own complex internal scale. I, uh, I got a message from a friend of the show, Shelley. She wanted to share a little bit from... Clap by Isaac Asimov, one of his short stories. Hi Tom, Shelley here, non-scientist fan of the show and your work in general over the past 25 years. I was recently reading a short story by Isaac Asimov called Water Clap and I thought I'd share what may be one of the earlier deep sea moon comparisons. Still, the oceans are only a part of the earth, a major part, but only a part. The deep sea is only a part of the ocean. It is inner space indeed. It works inward, narrowing constantly to a point. I think, broke in Annette, looking rather grim, that you're about to make a comparison with Lunar City. Indeed I am, said Demarest. Lunar City represents outer space, widening to infinity. There's nowhere to go down here in the long run. Everywhere to go out there. We don't judge by size and volume alone, Mr Demarest, said Bergen. The ocean's only a small part of the Earth, true, but for that very reason it is intimately connected with over five billion human beings. Ocean Deep is experimental, but the settlements on the continental shelf already deserve the name of cities. Ocean Deep offers mankind the chance of exploiting the whole planet, of polluting the whole planet, broke in Demarest excitedly, of raping it, of ending it. Concentration of human effort to Earth itself is unhealthy, and even fatal if it isn't balanced by a turning outward to the frontier. There's nothing at the frontier, said Annette, snapping out the words. The moon is dead. All the other worlds out there are dead. If there are live worlds among the stars, light years away, they can't be reached. The ocean is living. Oh, and while I've got you here, I've got a quick joke for you. What size coffee does a tube worm pick? Venti. Keep up the good work. Bye. What's a venti? It's a size of coffee, if you go to the fancy ones, where they use the Italian. Oh, that joke was absolutely wasted on me, but very funny. Well done. That's great. <laughs> so a little bit of moon analogy there in some very old sci-fi. Well, what the bit I don't get is says the ocean is inner space indeed. It works inward, narrowing constantly to a point. What does that mean? I think it's found out when this was written because it might be back when they believed that they were all sort of basins and they just got deeper and deeper and deeper and then came up the other side. So I'm going to go crazy here and I'm going to use this this tool that I've got in the office. It's called the internet. Thank you, boss. Uh, 
a novelette by Isaac Asimov. Publication day, February 76. 76. So plate tectonics was emerging, but... No, no. Plate tectonics was agreed in 1965. Ah. Ah, so they should have known. Maybe Isaac Asimov isn't fully up on the science. (laughs) I think it's incredible we're on episode 32. This is the 32nd time we've done that. Plus Christmas one. Jesus. Yeah, still going. Against all better judgment. I think it's going quite well, actually. It seems to be picking up momentum. Thank you for anyone who's sharing it. We haven't sort of been proactive. We haven't, like, bought any ads or anything. So the growth has been totally organic. So thank you for for people who've foisted it upon their friends because it is working. So thanks for that. And if you want to give us some money, feel free. Just just send it to me. <laughs> God, do you think if we went back to episode one and we, we sort of stepped out the time machine in our silver spandex and said, <laughs> you'll get to episode 32 and it, well, it still won't break even, <laughs> do you think we would have kept going? Well, that's not true, because apparently we've made 30 pence and one pint of lager so far out of the podcast. That's pretty good. That's true. I'm really excited for my one third of that pint. I'm looking forward to getting that. Uh, okay. It, it, you've got it, right? It's safe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I've saved you. Yeah, yeah, you, wouldn't, no, yeah. you wouldn't be taking out the company coffers, would you, mate? No, 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 no. I, I didn't, I didn't <laughs> just... for fraud. I didn't just scull it on the day. No, no, no. <laughs> did we talk about that? I don't think we did, actually. You, you got a pint from being recognised because of being famous. Yeah, got a pint in the pub. Deep Sea Podcast fan. I had met them about a year ago. So the story goes, there was a couple of guys in the local pub sitting outside. And uh, I was down there with somebody, I can't remember who it was, but they went home. And I was sat there for a bit in the dark, stalking as you do. And uh, the guys behind me are going on about, oh yeah, giant squid are like twice the length of a London bus. And we know more about the moon, the deep sea and all that kind of stuff. And I just slowly rotated around and said, lads, <laughs> lads, lads, we're going to have to talk about this. And uh, I sat for about two hours and uh, told them all about it. I introduced them to the podcast. And just the other night there, I was down in the same pub and the guy tapped me on the shoulder and he's like, hey, it's you. So he bought us a pint and uh, the big fans of the podcast. So, hey, so I, they're probably listening. I hope so. Either, or if he's not, he's a liar. <laughs> Out of politeness. Yeah. You got a pint though. Got a pint, yep. And <laughs> where, where, where did we get the 30 pence from? Um, we experimented with uh, automatically inserted ads. Oh. And I don't know if anyone heard it. If anyone heard it, let us know because I, I couldn't get it to work, but maybe it was regional. But yeah, we, we experimented with the podcast platform's ad base and... Uh, and made a blistering 30p. Is it, but surely we've made money up selling aprons. <laughs> he says as, a, as if that's, a, that's the most cleverest business model we've ever come up with. Yeah, but that's that's more for the, the love of it. But thank you to everyone who's built the merch. It is yeah. cool to see out. And actually, we've got a little follow-up. So I mentioned back when we went to the Challenger conference that we clocked someone with a Deep Sea Podcast notepad. And, you know, I, I caught sight of that and then I realized how cool and interesting and handsome the person was holding it because that's the kind of effect our merchandise has on people uh, and doing really good science as well. Mm. So that, that was Otis, who studies larval dispersal on hydrothermal vents, which is something that came up in our last episode. So we tracked him down. Yeah, it's not enough that he bought some of our merch. We're also going to get him to work for free. So he recorded us a little segment about his work. This is Otis. Hello, friends at the Deep Sea Podcast. Thank you for inviting me to talk about myself and my research on your upcoming episode. I'm a long-term fan, first-time caller for the Deep Sea Podcast. I'm a PhD student at the Okinawa Institute of Science and Technology in Japan. I study hydrothermal vent ecology and specifically connectivity. So how did I end up at the Okinawa Institute of Science and Technology? Well, it all started out at my undergraduate at Plymouth University in England, where I got interested in the deep sea and carried out my undergraduate dissertation on 
deep sea ecology itself. I did a short stint with the Deep Sea Conservation Research Unit before coming to Okinawa and then managed to find my way into the Marine Biophysics Unit, which happens to also study the deep sea. So since joining the Marine Biophysics Unit at OIST, I wondered how I could combine my professor's research on oceanographic modeling with my background in ecology and conservation of the deep sea. Shortly before I joined, my professor, Satoshi Mitarai, released a paper which quantified the dispersal among hydrothermal vents. Dispersal is a process that you guys talked about in your last episode, by which the juveniles of hydrothermal vent species travel passively mostly on ocean currents among hydrothermal vents. This is a very chancy, stochastic process where one in a billion individuals may reach and successfully settle at a hydrothermal vent. That got me thinking, what else enhances this connectivity among hydrothermal vents? Just the ability of one in a billion to reach there can't be enough it must have some interplay with the ecology and the environment at the hydrothermal vents. In your last episode, you had a strong focus on those hydrothermal vents in the East Pacific, which typically have been better studied. These hydrothermal vents are very close together and erupt on a decadal timescale wiping out all the organisms there. However, the hydrothermal vents that I'm looking at, the ones around Okinawa in Japan, these hydrothermal vents are often much further spaced apart and they don't actually erupt very regularly or over decadal timescales. They actually generally face natural disturbances over the scale of tens of thousands of years. Since they're quite far apart, how is colonization and dispersal amongst these hydrothermal vents possible. In short, what I'm studying is the interplay between this dispersal and the local environment at hydrothermal vents and how that drives our observations of connectivity. Basically, I run lots of different simulations to see if I can recreate the diversity and connectivity among hydrothermal vents in the Northwest Pacific that we find today. As I mentioned, these hydrothermal vents in the Northwest Pacific are very long-lived, spaced out, and don't experience natural disturbances very frequently. This makes them particularly vulnerable to any anthropogenic disturbances in the form of, let's say, deep sea mining, and also, unfortunately, simultaneously makes them a lot more appealing for extractive mining because they are so stable and long-lived. In fact, hydrothermal vent mining at a full scale has been tested here in Okinawa for the first time in the world. So a lot of my research is primed at finding out what regional effects that mining might have on nearby hydrothermal vents by simulating the processes of dispersal and connectivity. In fact, I'm actually able to recreate the community composition of hydrothermal vents around the Northwest Pacific just using these simulations. So a next step might be to incorporate some disturbance event into these simulations and see how it affects connectivity and regional diversity, things that we really value. Because hydrothermal vent mining is, let's say, imminent in the Okinawa trough, well, it already started in 2017 with intention to go full scale in the coming years. Because of this imminent hydrothermal vent mining, I've made it a bit of a mission of mine to communicate about hydrothermal vents locally to students and other members of the public. We've done lots of outreach trips to different schools and museums and remote islands around Okinawa. The main focal point of this outreach was printing physical copies of Treasures of the Deep. Any of you not familiar with this wonderful book, it's a really beautifully illustrated kid's story about hydrothermal vent ecosystems and mining. Thank you for listening. That's all very good, uh, but Otis being a fan of the podcast, but true fans buy us pints. <laughs> Direct to the producer. Yeah. Yeah, none of this middleman printing 
printing t-shirts nonsense just straight pints in face we don't want virtual gold we don't want physical gold we want liquid gold (laughs) fizzy liquid gold yeah i don't think we're good businessmen i don't think we're good at this it's not a good business model Uh, just get us a pint (laughs) just get us a pint that'll do the last 32 hours of podcast (laughs) (laughs) i know seriously no if anyone wants to give us a hundred thousand pounds a year to uh, keep this going then please do get in touch that'd be lovely so Hydrothermal Vents was last episode's big deep sea ecosystem, and we said we were going to move on this episode to whale falls. Who are we going to chat to about whale falls? I think we should chat to a guy who was involved in some of the early whale fall. I don't think he could have even been one of the guys who kind of discovered it as a phenomenon. Oh, you know what? Let's just give him a call. So today we have Craig Smith, who is a professor of oceanography at the University of Hawaii and an all-round deep-sea legend, and he has worked all over the world. He's led over 77 research expeditions from the equator to Antarctica, and he's published 240 papers on deep-sea ecology, biodiversity, climate change impacts, marine protected areas, and deep-sea mining. But he's also a pioneer in the field of whale fall ecology, and that's why we're talking to him today. So welcome to the Deep Sea Podcast, Craig. Thank you, Alan. So uh, what we're doing on the podcast at the moment is we're covering the last two episodes. As This is number three of four, looking at some of the big deep sea concepts. And we spoke to Ash Roden about seamounts and, and the significance of the seamounts and how they disrupt the norm. And then we talked to Chuck Fisher on, on the last episode of hydrothermal vents and things like endemic fauna and ephemeral nature of these types of environments. And what we want to talk to Craig today about are the whale falls. And so a lesser reported fact is that everything in the sea will die and it's not always at the hands of humans so everything from plankton to jelly squid fish dolphins and whales die but it's these large ones the whales and following the point of death they become truly fascinating when they reach the deep sea so craig let's start at the start what is the journey from the surface to the deep sea that begins at the point of death of a whale well, most whales, contrary to popular belief, actually, sink when they die. Most whale species are slightly negatively buoyant mm-hmm. when they're healthy, and even if they're, and most of them die when they're unhealthy and they're often nutritionally stressed. So, and many the baleen whales in particular are migratory species, and so they live in one air, one part of the ocean, often at high latitudes, and migrate to low latitudes to spawn and then migrate back to their feeding grounds. And in the migrations, there, there is significant mortality. And most of the whales that die in the ocean end up sinking to the sea floor. And they probably go down pretty rapidly. They, they may start sinking slowly, but then as any of the gas in their body compresses, they sink to the sea floor relatively rapidly. So there's almost certainly very little scavenging on the way down. Mm-hmm. So most whales hit the bottom of the sea floor intact. And most of the deep sea floor is a very food poor environment because most of the food that's available are very small particles of phytoplankton detritus, for example, or carcasses of zooplankton that sink down to the bottom. The smaller particles that sink more slowly and get consumed on the way down. So by the time you get to the deep sea, there's very little food availability. And a whale, in contrast, is a huge, gigantic bonanza of food when it hits the seafloor. So I, I read once about this thing about, I think they called it bloat and float. So that's not a thing. The idea that the, the gas expands and then they float, then they sink a bit and it bursts and then it goes back up and, and so on and so on. That happens if they are kept in shallow water. A number of scientists have done modeling of this and also observations. And if a whale dies and is retained at the surface in a net, for example, or if it mm-hmm. sinks in shallow water less than 100 meters, 
then the decompositional gases can float it up, although it doesn't always. We've sunk whales in 30 meters and they didn't come up. Oh, okay. So because the gas becomes compressed as you go deeper for every 10 meters down, it gets reduced by 50% in volume. And also gas is much more soluble in cold water, the decompositional gases, than in, in warmer water. So you don't have to go very deep before these decompositional gases don't float the whales back to the surface. Hmm. So how did we discover this as a sort of deep sea phenomenon? Is this something that people were saying, clearly, when a whale dies, it must be sinking? Or was this something that was a sort of uh, a serendipitous thing where somebody, I think it could have been yourself back in the day, had just come across one and then suddenly it's like, well, of course they do this. There, there wasn't really too much discussion of it. There were some early papers in the 30s, a paper in the 30s that talked about whales sinking to the bottom as potential food for the deep sea. But nobody really thought too much about it until... We found a whale skeleton on the bottom of the ocean with a whalefall community in 1987. We were diving with Alvin and uh, were actually trying to do a transect, and we kind of went off course. I, I was not in the submersible. I was the chief scientist of the cruise, and two graduate students were running the dive for me, and they got off course and happened on this huge skeleton of a, apparently a blue whale, 21 meters long. Wow. One of the interesting aspects of all this is when I was a graduate student, I was interested in what happens when a whale sinks to the bottom. So I tried to sink a whale back in 1982. Mm -hmm. And we it was a whale that had been retained at the surface, caught in a net, and it had generated decompositional gases, and we, we didn't have enough ballast to sink it. So we had to leave it. Eventually sank. We put a couple thousand pounds of weight on it. It didn't sink. Um, but anyway, the, these graduate students in the submarine, Alvin, knew that I had tried to do that as a graduate student. So they found this whale skeleton in the bottom and they were really excited, but they didn't use the underwater telephone yeah. to call us up and tell us, oh, we found a whale skeleton. What, what should we do? They just <laughs> said, oh, this is so cool. So they just grabbed a random bone and came up to the surface. And this happened to be the last dive of the cruise. Of course. They brought it, yeah, of course, they brought it up. They had some images on the bottom that weren't very high resolution. We could see some, looked like clamshells around it uh, and a bone, which was pretty cool. But we, well, geez, we can't, we can't even write a paper on this because we don't, you know, we can see picture, we can see this big skeleton, but we can't see what kind of animals on it. It might be clams on the sediments around it, but we can't really tell. So that, that was quite interesting. That's very frustrating, isn't it? That's the, that's the nature of the business, though, right? You get these, sometimes you get this snapshot of something huge and you're like, oh, not quite there. Yet. Yeah, that's kind of a recurrent theme in, in whale fall ecology where people found a whale just right at the end of the dive, did a little bit of sampling, and then they couldn't find it again. So we didn't really, for a year, we didn't have any real data that we could write a paper about. So we ended up convincing the National Science Foundation to give us a grant to go back the next year and do some sampling. And then that was the first whale, whale fall paper in, in 1989 in Nature. Nice. So, I mean, these things are huge, right? So just in terms of weight, you're looking at whales from a couple of tons up to 30 tons, maybe even more? The whales are huge. The, the great whales, the nine largest species of whales are 10 tons or more. The minkies are the smallest, and they are adults are 10 to 12 tons. An adult blue whale, the, the largest size of which probably are no longer present in the ocean, but they can get over 100 tons. And during the heyday of whaling in, 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 in Antarctica in the early 1900s, they are, they are very good, re reliable records of blue whales that were over 100 tons. So when we think about how much organic matter is in a whale, like a 40-foot a, a gray whale, it's something like 30 to 40 tons is a, a reasonable mass of, of soft tissue. So when you think about the whale arriving on the seafloor, you've now got, let's say, 30 tons of meat, which is there. And at this point, 
it's this is where the whole whale fall phenomena really starts, right? Because it, again, it's it's created this focal point for everything in the area to start coming to, and it has several stages, right? So can you talk us through the different stages of the whale fall over what type of time periods we're talking. Sure. Well, when a you know a typical great whale might be forty tons in weight, it's mostly very high quality food, organic matter. A lot of it is in blubber and proteins and also in the oily bones. Something like 10% of the oil in a whale's carcass is actually inside the bone. And when it sinks to the sea floor, the whale may cover 50 square meters of the bottom. And in one instant, the equivalent amount of food that's reaching the seafloor from the whale is equivalent to what falls to the seafloor from small particles over a time scale of 100 to up to 2,000 years, depending on where you are in the deep sea. So it's a huge pulse of food in one, one instant. What we found, and this has been documented now in many different parts of the ocean, that when a whale hits the bottom, it goes through a series of successional stages or changes in the community over time. And the first stage that we've documented is what we call the mobile scavenger stage. And this is where the stage where large mobile scavengers like sleeper sharks, uh, hagfish, crabs and amphipods that come in and very voraciously feed on the soft tissue. And they, they, it's just a huge feeding frenzy that may go on for months or even years, depending on how large the carcass is and where it is in the ocean. So then this mobile scavenger stage goes on and it is a frenzy and you just see bits of whale flying, coming, being dispersed from the carcass. In fact, you, you see particles all over in the water column around the whale. And they sink to the seafloor. One thing that's pretty interesting is even when these big sharks bite off a piece of blubber on the whale, it sinks to the bottom. Probably, be, yeah, which not all the blubber parcels do, but some of them do, and many of the big pieces. And these scavengers are sloppy feeders. They're just biting and chewing, and, you know, it's a frenzy. Well, they must have all sorts of like, environmental cues going on there because you would have, not only do you have this big thing which leaking oil, you would have noise of all these animals tearing into it and all the hydrodynamic disturbance that they're doing. All these particles are then now emanating down current. You know, this thing must be like a beacon saying, hi, I'm 30 tons worth of food. Come and get me. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, there, there, there's some evidence from scavenger studies that they may may use sound waves or waves that propagate through the sediment called stonely waves to detect the presence of a big carcass or a big food fall. And um, also, there clearly, there will be an odor plume. One of the interesting things to speculate about is what are the compounds in that odor plume that may attract them. And there are, during the decomposition of carcasses, there are some compounds that have interesting names like cadaverine and putrescine that are products of microbial degradation. And they may, they are, they, apparently they're used by scavengers in terrestrial environments like vultures to detect the odor of a decomposing carcass. So they may play a role in, in the deep ocean as well. We, we don't know, but um, you know, speculation that some of these compounds characteristic of rotting flesh may be an attractant. So there's the second stage, that's when all of the bulk of, of the meat and blubber, if you like, is gone, and you're down to more or less a, a skeleton. That's right. We, it's been skeletonized, and then we call this enrichment opportunist stage because the local sediments and the, the, the bones themselves are still very rich in organic matter. The local sediments have been organically enriched from some of the blubber being pushed into the sediment when the whales hit the bottom, and also from bits of the whale raining out and covering the surrounding sediments to a few meters. And we called it the enrichment opportunist stage because there are characteristic species that use organic enrichment at the seafloor for feeding and completing their life cycle. And these are certain kinds of polychaete worms, like we call them capitellids in the family capitellidae. 
and also uh, other several different families of polychaete worms are particularly respond to organic enrichment. And what's kind of interesting is that the community that surrounds this whale fall in the deep sea looks functionally, and even with same of the same higher taxa, similar to the kinds of communities that occur around sewage outfalls in shallow water. Some of the same families of polychaetes yeah. um, using the same feeding habits, grazing on the, the organic material in the sediment, and also bacteria that are growing in this organic rich material. So that's why we call it opportunistic species responding to enrichment. And then stage three is when the whole thing is, is, is looking a bit worse for wear. This is a sulfur-loving stage, and all these stages are, overla are overlapping. During the organic enrichment stage, some of the sediments are so organic-rich that the aerobic bacteria can't break down some of this soft tissue, and the enrichment opportunists don't remove it all. So the system goes anoxic. There's not enough oxygen for the bacteria to use it as an electron acceptor to breathe oxygen, essentially, and break down the organic matter. So what happens in this next stage, the sulfur-loving stage, is that uh, in the bones in particular, but also in the nearby sediments, there's so much organic matter that the decomposition of this tissue in the lipids and proteins in the bones and in the sediments goes anaerobic. So we call them sulfate-reducing bacteria. Instead of using oxygen in their metabolism, they use sulfate as an electron acceptor. They're essentially breathing sulfate and to break down the organic matter, and they produce sulfide, which is a, an energy-rich compound that can be used by another suite of bacteria called chemoautotrophic bacteria. They essentially conduct primary production, but they're rather than sunlight being their energy source, it's the energy in these in the sulfide. So during the sulfur-loving stage, we see animals actually that are closely related, even some of the same species that occur at hydrothermal vents. We have tube worms, descomide clams. These are big white clams that can be 10 to 15 centimeters long that have in their gills, their gills are loaded with bacteria that take the sulfide that's coming out of the whale and fix organic matter. And this, this stage actually has over 100 species of animals. In fact, on one whale carcass, we found 200 different species of animals living during the sulfophilic stage. So there's also a reef stage after eventually the lipid does get depleted by bacteria in the bones. And then it's just like a rock. The whale skeleton is a, yeah. a, a reef. And then you find they're, they're actually, we've documented that also. You have animals living on the, on the whale bones as a hard substrate and not using yeah. anything characteristic of the, the, the whale itself. So what are the similarities between whale fall communities and vent communities then? Because we were talking to uh, Chuck Fisher on the last episode, and one of the big stories in vents is larval distribution, and how does a vent get recolonized? I've read over the years a little bit about stepping stone hypotheses and stuff like that. So do you think whale falls are offering a, a kind of bridge for vent larvae? They do for some species. You know, whale falls and hydrothermal vents have a long list of species, most of which aren't shared. But there are something like 25 to 30 species that that are shared between hydrothermal vents and cold seeps. It's a small percentage of the total fauna, but they do have shared species. And for example, there's one vescomide clam that lives on hydrothermal vents in on the Juan de Fuca Ridge, so that's off the coast of Washington and Oregon. Yep. They live in Baja, California on hydrothermal vents. And then they occur, occur in whale falls in between um, along, along the coast of California. And they're genetically the same species, and there are no hydrothermal vents. They haven't been, the species has not found, been found in cold seeps along the, the California margin, but they, they live on whale falls. So 
it seems quite reasonable that this particular species of clam, Eskimoid clam, is actually dispersing between hydrothermal vents on the Juan de Fuca Ridge and the Guaymas Basin by using whale skeletons as stepping stones. Huh, fascinating. With that in mind, has anyone ever tried to estimate how many whale falls there might be or how many are going down per year? And actually, we've been doing these for years. We published the first ones in 2003. And with some very reasonable assumptions, we estimated the known population sizes of the nine largest whale species in the global ocean, the great whales. And if you assume that the uh, sulfophilic stage can last about 10 years, sulfur-loving stage for an adult whale, we actually know it can last significantly longer, and I can tell you how we know this uh, later. But we estimated that there are over 600,000 whale skeletons in the bottom of the ocean in the sulfophilic stage, given the current population density. So that's almost probably an order of magnitude more than there are hydrothermal vents. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. 600,000 is huge. It's a large number. You know, the ocean is a big, big place, but this is a large number. And if, you, if you're interested in how easy it is for whale specialist animals that require whale falls to complete their life cycles to disperse between whale falls, well, if on a global basis, the mean average distance to the next closest whale skeleton is something on the order of 12 kilometers. They're hard to find if you just go drive around on the bottom, but mm. if you can disperse in the currents for a significant amount of time, there's a good chance that some of your larvae may find a whale fall. Obviously, whales are traveling in migration routes, so they won't necessarily be sort of uniformly distributed across like the entire Pacific. There will be corridors where they're more frequent, right? Absolutely, yeah. All the baleen whales, as far as I know, undergo migrations. Most of the mortality for these migratory species occurs during migration, and so the concentration will be higher along these migration routes. That's fascinating, 600,000. Crazy. So the next thing I want to talk about, because I think for the benefit of the of the audience, is there's an animal that not many people, not many normal people have ever come across, and that is the Ossidax. And we can't talk about whale falls without talking about Ossidax. Well, Ossidax are called bone-eating worms or zombie worms, and these are really bizarre animals. They're worms without a gut, without an anus. They bore into the into whale bones. They dissolve the, the mineral matrix of the bone with acid. And then they have this green root-like structure that grows out into the bone, and then they absorb organic matter, lipids, and proteins, and digest that. And they have bacteria that help them to do that inside their bodies. And then the top of it is they look like a little red palm tree, tiny little red palm trees that sticks out of the bone to take up oxygen. So they're they're bone-eating specialists. They're now about 35 species that have been identified at least with molecular genetics of this these worms, although the first one was described in 2003. These worms are really bizarre in the way they, they feed. Their life history is really unusual. Aren't the males microscopic? Yeah, they have dwarf males that are tiny. One female may have tens of dwarf males that are attached to her body, providing sperm for fertilization, kind of like ceratioids in the deep sea. Yeah. Some of the anglerfish also have parasitic males. So the, the dwarf males in these worms and Ossidax worms don't feed. They're just stuck onto the females. In terms of studying whale falls, even with a number like 600,000, relative to somebody driving an ROV or being in a sub, the, the density is still incredibly low. Would you, would you or have you ever actually gone out with the sole purpose of trying to find one, or do you just accept the fact that you go about doing your normal research and if you find one, it's a bonus? Well, yeah, if you want to study natural whale falls, you have to be lucky. Early on, when we found the first whale fall, um, well, we published about that, and I, we, I did some some of these back of the envelope calculations to figure out how many whales carcasses there should be on the bottom of the ocean. 
And it turns out in the gray whale range to be about one for every 200 square kilometers. And that's a big area to search. Yeah. And just shortly after I did that calculation, I got a call from the U.S. Navy that had been um, surveying an area with side scan sonar, high resolution side scan sonar, which is a sonar technique for visualizing structures on the seafloor. They did this off the coast of California because they had lost a missile. They had launched a missile and it crashed um, unexpectedly, and they wanted to see what had gone wrong. So they went down to the seafloor. They towed this array, a side scan sonar array, behind the, the vessel near the seafloor. And every time they saw what they thought was a linear debris field, they sent, then sent an ROV down to take video of it. <laughs> and they found 12 of these linear debris fields they found were whale skeletons. Wow. And they surveyed about a 200 square kilometer area of seafloor, and they found 12, uh, 12 whale skeletons, something like that. And they and so they weren't interested in whale skeletons, so they just kind of shelved that. And then one of the one of the officers somehow he heard about our research on whale falls, and so he he wrote me a letter and said, "Oh, we found all these whale skeletons in the bottom of the ocean. Are you interested in them?" And I said, "Oh, absolutely." So he sent me videos of these uh, whale skeletons. So then we, I got a proposal funded to go out and search for them. But the problem was because they weren't that interested in whale skeletons, they do, didn't do a really good job in marking the locations and, and getting a good fix on them. Yeah. So we went out and spent a number, quite a few ROV dives and we were only able to find one of the ones that they, they had originally seen. And that was a big whale. This is in the San Nicolas Basin. Um, there's a big whale fall. It turns out to be the oldest one. It's been on the sea for the longest of any of the ones we studied off Southern California. And so we realized that, well, it is literally comparable to searching for a needle in a haystack just because, you know, they spent, I think, two months of ship time to go out with a side scan sonar and spent many millions of dollars surveying the bottom. And we, and we don't have the resources to do that. So the way we study, and many people now study whale fall ecosystems is to sink whales to the bottom of the ocean. If a, a whale gets stranded, in fact, we're in the process of trying to sink one off the west coast of Vancouver Island. You could have yanked these guys' chains by saying, uh, well, that's funny because we were out there recently and uh, we saw what looked like a missile, but we didn't quite mark down the line long because we didn't find it that interesting. <laughs> well, that, that that's an interesting thing to say because one of the last times we went there, we were diving, and about 100 meters away from this whale carcass, we found this big cylinder. <laughs> we didn't know what it was, and we didn't want to go too close, so we um, we went away. <laughs> so you just bide your time and get your revenge by sending them a grainy black and white picture of something and saying, ah, it's out there. I, I think we just, for one thing, we were worried that maybe we wouldn't be able to go back to the whale fall. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. So yeah. I, I, it may, that missile may be down there somewhere on the bottom. <laughs> So speaking of ballistics, uh, at this point we should mention that when we interviewed Ashley Roden a couple of months ago for the Seamounts, and he told this story that we've all heard, but we actually removed it from the final edit because we decided to let you tell the story. And this is to do with when you can't find a whale fall, you sink a whale yourself. So obviously you, you find a, a, a dead whale, you take it and you try and sink it. And there's, there's, a, there's a famous story that I heard very early on in my career about the perils of trying to sink a whale fall, and the, let's say in inverted commas, the tools you have to hand to aid in the sinking process. So, Well, yeah, I can I can walk you, the audience, through the whole process because it is pretty interesting. And there are some unique characteristics of doing it in the U.S. probably <laughs> because of our liberal 
laws. We've now sunk seven whale carcasses in various parts of the ocean, and every one is different and unique challenges. It's, it's quite an exercise in logistics. And one of the ones that's pretty interesting that a lot of people may be familiar with is the one in the original Blue Planet series. Mm. And we sank that in 1998. And what happens when you want to sink a whale is you, in the U.S., there's something called the Marine Mammal Stranding Network, and they keep track of all the strandings of whales. And we tell them, oh, we're looking for a whale in this part of the ocean. And so one comes up, they call us, and we and then we fly to that site, and we found a vessel that we could charter to take out. We loaded a bunch of ballast on it, and we went out and got the whale. And this whale had been floating for 10 to 12 days. It was stuck under a pier and got stuck and died. This is about a 30-ton gray whale. When we got there, we are kind of concerned that it, it might have deteriorated enough that it might start to fall apart. So what we've done for many whales is that we've wrapped them in purse netting. So my graduate student, Amy Baco, and I put on our scuba gear, went in the water and took per se netting and wrapped it around the whale. And if you've ever been near a dead whale, you realize that this is quite a, a smelly process. Rotting whales stink like nothing else I've ever encountered. They have this very pungent, penetrating odor that you can't get out of your clothes if you touch them. So we, we wrapped this, this gray whale carcass in per se netting. In the process, I was diving and I was kicking my my flippers, my fins, and I thought I kicked something. I look around and there wasn't anything there. And so I, you know, you, I thought I must have kicked my own flipper. So we, we finished wrapping the whale in per se netting. And then we got back on the boat and we towed it out to sea, about 70 miles out to sea. And then we, it was holding together very well. So we said, oh, we'll just take the per se netting off. So we took that off, pulled it on board, and there was a six foot blue shark wrapped inside Ooh. the netting. So we had wrapped it up. So it was eating on the whale. It was still alive and it just swam off. That's probably what I kicked. <laughs> but anyway, so then we had this whale. It was quite buoyant. And we had brought 6,000 pounds of, of steel ballast. And we kept adding that to the whale, tied it onto the tail of the whale, kept adding it. And it wouldn't sink. It wasn't enough ballast to sink it. And so then the chief engineer of the boat said, well, I have an idea. And so he went down <laughs> below and came out with his Colt 45 semi-automatic pistol and just blazed away, bam, 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 bam. And that didn't do any good um, because the bullets didn't penetrate very much. So then he said, well, wait a minute, I have something better. So he went down and came up with this big rifle and started, <laughs> started shooting at it. And we all stood back, you know, and I have actually pictures of him blazing away at the whale carcass. And this is a technique that can only be used in the U.S. It turns out that probably all the crews on U.S. vessels have their own arsenal of, of weapons. I was going to say, because aren't you at the end at a point saying, uh, you know, your enthusiasm for helping out is, is, is commendable, but what the hell? <laughs> like, yeah, what? sorry, unless you have an awful lot of lead and can add to the ballast. Yeah, we, we have to stop this operation. So then what we did is I, I got down in a little boat, a, a inflatable boat with a flensing knife, and I was poking holes in the whale, trying to get into the lungs to get the get the yeah. air out of the lungs. And I was literally up to my armpit into the whale with the flensing oh. knife slicing around. And that was quite gross. And all this gas was coming out, but it still wasn't enough. So then we were getting kind of despondent. Oh, the whale isn't going to sink. And then the captain of this vessel had a really good idea. He said, well, look, the, the ballast is pulling the tail of the whale down. And it looks almost, almost like a hydrofoil. So why don't we tow the whale and see if that just pulls the whale down below the surface. So we did that. We started towing. We got up to one knot, got up to two knots. The whale was still floating. Then we got up to two and a half or three knots, and suddenly the whale disappeared. And it went down to the, under the water, and so we stopped the vessel, and it was hanging straight down with the ballast. So that actually worked. But we still had a ship's cable 
tied to the the back of the whale. So we, we pulled the whale up again to try and get the cable off. And we realized we weren't going to get it up. The carcass came up under the fizzing and all kinds of foul odor was coming out. Oh. So we lowered it down again and it sank. So the chief engineer said, okay, well, we'll just cut the cable. So he got out a, a blowtorch, <laughs> went to the, the winch where the, the, the cable was coming off. It came off the winch and then it went about 30 feet up through an A-frame and then down to the whale. So he has to stand back, cuts the cable, and it just just shoots out, you know, just wet, flap, flying back and forth, whap, 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 goes over the A-frame and goes down to the bottom. So it was gone. We sank it. And we were ecstatic. There's so many red flags in terms of safety involved in that story. <laughs> so, yeah, like, like you mentioned, if anyone doesn't know, there, there are some things in our profession which are truly, truly, truly disgusting. <laughs> One is the uh, the smell of rotting whale carcass. It chokes you, right? It just it doesn't leave, it doesn't leave you either. And I think the lipid, you know, fumes are a carrier for these very pungent <laughs> odors that just are penetrating. And we actually had rented wetsuits when we sank this whale, and we did our best to watch the whale. <laughs> did you hand them back to the shop? Well, we had to hand them back, you know, and we we, we didn't tell them to smell the wetsuits, but they, you know, they didn't they didn't say anything, you know. So maybe some future divers had some interesting experiences. <laughs> Yeah, a very long time ago when I was working with Monty, we did a dead dolphin experiment and, uh, to various degrees of success. But w what we did then was, like you say, we, we contacted the marine mammal, whatever it was it called at the time, and said, next time you have a stranding, could you do your autopsy on the dolphin engine and, and freeze it for us? We'll come and get it and we'll use it. And we did that once and it was fine. And then we went to go and get the second one. Of course, it was frozen in a body bag. So you have these stories of two guys in a car pulling up outside this depot somewhere, throwing this body bag in the trunk of a car and driving off and then you can't defrost it until you want to because it smells so unbelievably wrong. So a couple of months later, you're on a ship and we, we, we put this thing in the in old garbage can at the back of the boat <laughs> so that try and keep it away from everybody else and unzipped it a little bit to try and get it to thaw out. And of course, it eventually started to smell more and more and more and it's really quite rotten. And then the day came, we had to put this thing on the lander. So we unzipped the body bag and the guy from the autopsy place never mentioned that he'd taken his head off. So we, so we're slipping out this dolphin with no head, just pouring blood everywhere, and everyone's retching. Right? It's, like, it's like, whose job is it to tie this on the lander? And everyone's looking at me. Ah, great. <laughs> That's truly disgusting. To wrap up then, having a number of decades under your belt in deep sea science, there must be some misconceptions that you've come across repeatedly that just drive you up the wall. Well, you know, with respect to whale falls, there are a couple. One that uh, I've already mentioned is the idea that most whales, when they die, are stranded on the shore. And if you look at the population statistics for gray whales, for example, we know that in a typical year, there may be 100 or 200 dying. And typically, there are only I mean, a good year of stranding is 20, 20 gray whales stranding along the Northeast Pacific coast. So they're going somewhere. They're either going into outer space or sinking. Well, yeah, if they, if they don't sink, where are they? <laughs> so. The other misconception, which is a more recent one, is this idea that Ossidax completely destroys whale skeletons. Two of the whale, natural whale skeletons that we've studied, we developed a radiometric dating technique using radium-226 lead-210. So we can actually take a whale bone that's in the bottom of the ocean and use this technique, and we can tell you how long it's been since it's died. And two of the whale skeletons that we've been studying for a while were one of them. The first one we found when we last sampled it had dated to be 34 years since death. Mm -hmm. So we know they can last for decades. And even there's one that we visited over a period of 18 years, and the, the sulfur-loving community on that skeleton didn't look any different after 18 years in it than the day we found it. Well, because surely, surely if the Ossidax are there because they're, they're feeding off the lipid, they're not going to destroy the entire bone. They're just going to survive there until the lipid's gone. 
No, the lipid stays there. The, the whole bone is impregnated in lipid. Both of these skeletons that were 34 years and 74 years at the time on the seafloor at the time of sampling had a lipid-rich core of 50 to 60% lipid in the middle of the bone. But what happens with Osidac is that they're great whale bones, a mature great whale. The bones are huge and they're, they're mm. essentially a rock. They're hydroxyapatite, which is a, a mineral that doesn't dissolve in seawater. We found multiple whale skeletons that have evidence of oxidax boring and no living oxidax on them. And we've even found whale bones that are covered with a manganese crust that takes thousands of years to deposit. So we know these bones have been on the bottom for thousands of years. So there's all kinds of evidence now that oxidax die off on, on great whale skeletons before they destroy the bone. That's crazy. They end up with a manganese crust. Yeah. I never knew that. We, we've actually found bones of extinct beaked whales on the bottom in the, the clarion Clipperton zone. They're sitting on the bottom. They've been extinct for hundreds of thousands of years, and the bones are still there, and they have a manganese crust on them. <laughs> wow, that's absolutely fascinating. And with that, Craig, I think our time's up. I just want to say thank you very much. I thought that was absolutely, totally and utterly fascinating. All righty, thanks. Well, I thought it was interesting what you were saying about on the manganese nodule field, there's all this other stuff like fossils and stuff that are coming up encrusted in manganese. I find that truly interesting because there's not a particularly big fossil record in the deep sea anyway. But uh, yeah, that episode of the one before, we were talking about that company who just managed to destroy however many square kilometers of seafloor picking up manganese nodules. Well, a friend of ours has a friend who works for that company and they've been gloating about the number of megalodon teeth that came up with all those manganese nodules and they've mm. all been taking them home for souvenirs so not only destroying the animals present they're also destroying the animals past it's a happy story wow that's going to seed a lot more megalodon in the deep sea nonsense isn't it yeah it was a shallow fish they just fell to the bottom teeth sink yeah i know it's just weird that you destroy was 80 square kilometers of seafloor and take souvenirs home to celebrate your good good work it's a testament to how slow that the sedimentation rate is, because a lot of the worry is that these are very static environments that haven't changed, and the fact that there are megalodon teeth lying on the top of a sandy seabed sort of is a nice, mm. it's a nice example of that. <laughs> You're removing the amount of seabed that goes back as far as the megalodon, which is a lot of seabed to remove chronologically. Things is very sad, but there you go. Well, I think we we have to accept it's happening, and then it's about sort of management. But I don't know. I need to be more informed. And this is this is the space that we operate in, but it's it's easy to get fatigued very quickly and feel a bit helpless. I liked the the smell of dead cetaceans coming up, which is a, a such a unique smell. You never get over it. So are sponges though. That sponge you're gonna eat in the name of COVID nineteen research. Oh, that's such a weird smell. Yeah. It smells like someone's drank ammonia and then thrown up in the toilets of a medieval asylum. That's exactly what it smells like. Yeah. But it smells cold. There's something like deeply cold about it. I think it's the ammonia. I actually think I think I think the deep sea sponges smell worse than the dead cetacean. Really? I think it follows you. It haunts you. Oh, the whale stuff does, especially if you've touched it. If you've got the oil on you. I just thought the sponge smell was so alien. Like it, it didn't, you know, like a, like a rotting carcass is pungent and horrible, but you know what it is. Yeah. That smell was just like that. Could be. I just like your brain can't place what it smells like. It's just bad. Your brains are just going that that that. Oh, I would imagine that sort of rotting cetacean isn't a million miles from sort of rotting human. And maybe that's like an instinctive thing. That's your brain going, that is a bad smell. We don't want to be by that smell. It will either make us sick or it means there's something bad. Mm. But I think, yeah, you're right. The sponge is so alien that the brain is just error. No, no file found. <laughs> 
Hello, this is explorer oceanographer Don Walsh, and today's program is called Deaf Whale, Dead Whale. The major source of whale falls is ship strikes that kill about 20,000 whales per year worldwide. And by comparison, commercial whaling takes just 1,000 animals per year. And the death toll is increasing, with 2022 being the worst year on record. And the culprit is man-made noise pollution in the ocean. Understandably, whales must have outstanding hearing abilities, as some species can communicate over great distances, distances measured in hundreds of miles. With their extreme acoustic sensitivity, it's not surprising that excessive sound in the sea can severely stress or permanently damage their hearing. Often, they cannot hear a ship until it's too late. At the same time, the ship's crews cannot see them. Also, they are poor radar targets and sightings at night are nearly impossible. This is a big problem for ship operators and government agencies who want to avoid these incidents. But it is not unsolvable. For whales, speed kills. In World War II, merchant ships travel at a stately 8 to 10 knots. Today, some can move at 25 knots or higher on a regular basis. Also, size matters. In World War II, the ubiquitous Liberty ship weighed 8,000 tons. Currently, the largest cargo ship is almost 200,000 tons, equivalent to four World War II battleships. And they are long, with some being over 1,300 feet. That's a bit over a quarter mile. Ship's machinery and propeller noise are the primary sources of damaging acoustic energy radiated into the sea. The largest container ships can have a massive 114,000 horsepower engine driving a single 40-ton, 20-foot diameter propeller. Well, why don't whales detect all this noise and simply move out of the way? Well, it's because they are slow swimmers relative to the ship's speeds. And under certain conditions, they simply do not hear the larger vessels. For example, when the ship's bow is pointed at the whale, the sheer mass of the ship and its length mask the machinery and propeller noise. In other situations, the ship's radiated sound is so great that the whales are deafened and become disoriented. Then ship strikes happen. On the larger ships, the crew may not even know they've hit one, as the ship's bridge can be 1,300 feet from the bow. And several years ago, there was a very famous picture of a cargo ship arriving in port with a dead whale draped across its bow. The ship's crew was unaware of it, and in fact, the first time they knew about it was when the pilot guiding them into port told the bridge crew that there was actually a whale hung up on the bow of their ship. Well, what can be done? Areas of whale concentrations are somewhat seasonal, so knowing their migration paths and location of breeding grounds can help ship operators avoid the most congested areas with a minimum disruption of their voyage schedules. And scientific agencies can develop predictions of where the animals will be and can provide forecasts to the shipping companies. Research has shown that as ship speeds increased, the whale strikes also increased. Before the 1950s, when transit speeds were much lower, ship collisions with large marine mammals were infrequent. The best chances for reduction of whale mortality is a sweet spot where the ship speed is between 10 and 14 knots in those areas where whale concentrations are expected. Each year, the volume of global marine traffic continues to grow. Bad news for whales. However, with some modification of shipping routes, reduced vessel speeds, and forecasting of areas where ship strikes are likely, both mammals in the sea and those inside the ships can coexist to the benefit of both. It is possible to protect these largest marine mammals who share our planet with us and still maintain the growth of global shipping. Well, that's all for now. And 
Thanks for listening. So that concludes this episode of the Deep Sea Podcast. We have started to produce a newsletter, which will give you little reminders about what's in each episode. It'll carry links if you just want to dive in and get right to the the subject that's interesting you and some little wider reading. So you can sign up for those on our website or the link will be below in the show notes. We were talking about helping the show and spreading the word. Leaving a review is fantastic. That's a great way of doing it. So please do whatever device, cup on a string you're listening to us on. Uh, If you can hit some stars on that, then that'd be fantastic. And feel free to get in touch via social media. We are chatty, ask questions, just say hi, and it'd be great to hear from you. Coming up, we are trying to do a Parasite episode, because that's come up a lot, so that is formulating right now. And for Neurodivergency Awareness Week, coming in March, we're going to do our next deco stop. We experimented a bit with the first deco stop with sort of still finding its tone, but it's a bit more about the scientists. It's a bit more about what it's like to work in this field. So it's more people centric. And so in March, we'll be releasing our neurodivergence in science episode, talking to a few different people about the strengths and weaknesses of thinking a little bit different within science and how that can be a a sort of blessing and a curse. And we've got some great people to talk to about that, including deep sea legend Bob Ballard who found out quite late in life that he's dyslexic. So we talked about that. It was actually his, his kids getting diagnosed that, that made him aware of it himself. So there's, there's quite a few people who find out later in life and talks about the sort of strengths and weaknesses and the, the differences in his ways of thinking. So look forward to that. That's going to be coming in March. Right. And until the next time, things to look forward to in the future. We'll deep see you next time. And we abyss you already. If you would like to advertise with the Deep Sea Podcast, feel free to get in touch. Our audience is primarily young people with an interest in science, often undergraduates or people considering a degree in marine science, but it also includes established scientists. Feel free to get in touch if you're interested in reaching these groups. Do you want to say anything at the end? I'll go and buy some pints. <laughs> If you see us in person, in, in the human meat space. Yeah, even if you're not in the pub, even if you see us in the pub, but you're not going to the pub, you can just stop by, buy us a pint and then go. If you see us talking at a conference, just approach the stage. Yeah, just <laughs> gently, gent- quietly mind, quietly mind. Yeah, don't interrupt. Yeah, lay a pint down on the stage and I'll pick it up when I'm stopped talking. <laughs> Alternatively, if you're a deep sea water mineral pharmaceutical company in Taiwan and you fancy... Uh, sponsoring a podcast we're big fans of your your minerals <laughs> we love those minerals i mean of all the minerals those are my favorites what's your favorite mineral individually uh calcium yeah it's a solid one isn't it i love it yeah i love it. i can't get enough of it i eat calcium bars for breakfast uh so yeah so uh, uh you know we're happy to uh promote your products on the podcast in exchange for two hundred fifty thousand pounds a year it's amazing how quickly we'll sell out yeah good stuff <laughs>